0: For many people, a visit to London is synonymous with a few historical landmarks, such as Big Ben, the Tower of London and Shakespeare's Globe Theatre. There are also some tourist hotspots which aren't as historical but are deemed unmissable, such as the London Eye, Harrods and a trip to the top of the Shard. However, one place on people's lists has become more commercialised in recent years, but it can't escape its gory history from whence it originated. This time, on Macabre London, we'll be uncovering the legacy of Marie Tussauds and her legendary waxworks. London today is a bustling metropolis an exciting place to visit and a somewhat safe place to call home. An eclectic mix of people from all over the world live in London. In some parts of this vibrant capital, the crime rate is lower than that of much smaller cities in other parts of the UK. However, things haven't always been so safe. Stories and tales of old have echoed around the streets and grown to become that of legend, particularly those of a gruesome nature. Today we'll be exploring one of these stories, discovering about London's often bloody past. My name is Nikki Drees, and this is Macabre London. of us who would like to take a selfie with a celebrity, the opportunity doesn't come around that often. However, there is a place in London and several large cities across the world that affords people that pretend intrusion of privacy for a price. Madame Tussauds is known around the globe for offering a strange recreational activity, staring at replicas of famous and infamous people sculpted entirely from wax celebrities in the house of wax currently include prestigious names such as the queen elton john and kim kardashian all household names and in marie tussaud's heyday those in the galleries were regarded in the exact same way marie was born in strasbourg in switzerland into a poor family whose male lineage had mainly consisted of executioners The social norms in Switzerland at the time meant that even before she was born, Marie was set for a life-led poor. Executioner's daughters were only allowed to marry executioners, and without many prospects to work themselves, life was set to be poor, and even worse, incredibly boring. Realising this, Marie's mother decided she wanted more for her daughter and when Marie's father died just before she was born. She asked her brother-in-law to look after Marie, in the hopes he would pass down some of his knowledge to her and remove her from the cyclical ball that would otherwise have been betrothed to her. Philippe Cursius was an anatomical modeller and doctor. He was revered in his hometown of Bern for how he was able to not only sculpt bodies from wax, but for how lifelike he was able to make them. In a time when real-life corpses were becoming less and less available, Cursius provided a service to the schools of physicians, ...by giving them lifelike cadavers from which their students could learn their craft. As a result of his skill, Curtius received a job offer from the Prince of Comte... ...who had seen his wax models in Bern and decided to make him an offer to move to Paris... ...continue his sculpting and put his exhibits on show to the public with his financial support. After some discussion, Curtius and Marie's mother decided it would make financial sense... ...for her to look after his house in Switzerland whilst he tried to make a go of it in Paris. If the venture was a failure, then he would return to Switzerland, where he could continue his profession as a doctor, and still keep his home. After the move to Paris, curtius was in demand, and was in need of some helping hands. So in order to earn her keep, little Marie, who was now six years old, and her mother, made the move to join him. And soon Marie began assisting him in his studio, and would spend all of her days learning his sculpting skills. Marie excelled in modelling, and would assist by taking casts of faces of those that were requested from Curtius. The request for more celebrities of the time were coming in thick and fast, and in 1770, Curtius had opened his first exhibition in Paris, where people could come and witness for themselves the faces of the celebrities of the day. The exhibition was incredibly popular with the French public, and people would come from miles around to see it. In a time when photographs weren't yet invented, people were only familiar with the names of celebrities and didn't necessarily know what they looked like. If people were able to see likenesses, then these would have been paintings or etchings, which weren't always reliable, and also wouldn't have necessarily portrayed height, hair and eye colour, and may not have been particularly flattering. At Curtius's exhibition, visitors would know that the representation was accurate, as he often modelled his pieces from life, and in some cases, death. Marie was now sculpting under the mentor of Curtius, and her wax models were now being viewed by the paying public, who adored her work. One notable sculpture was that of Curtius himself, and to this day remains the only surviving example of her early work, which is held in a museum in Paris. Marie was excelling in her modelling skills, making plaster moulds, pouring wax, and painting and sculpting faces. As the popularity of Cursius’s first exhibition grew, he opened a second space, which would capitalise on capital punishment. Curtius had realised that the French were madly fascinated by public executions. People from a diverse range of backgrounds would flock to the gruesome spectacle, fight over the best positions, rent balcony space, and travel from miles around to see the most hated criminals be publicly humiliated and executed. Kersius realised that there was money to be made from those who wanted to stand in the same room as a criminal without the threat of them actually being real. So as a result, he opened his grand cavern des Voleurs, and the French public queued to witness the spectacle. And it began to be more popular than the original exhibition. With both exhibitions thriving, The next few years saw Marie sculpting more and more, as Curtius took more of a back seat, due to his health beginning to fade. But there would be much worse to come, as the French Revolution was amping up, and political unrest was set to affect their operation. Marie was now revered in her field as a fine artist, and the student had definitely exceeded the skill of her master. Curcius was thrilled that Marie had become such an impressive sculptor and knew that he would be safe in allowing Marie to one day take over the exhibition for herself. Once the French Revolution had begun, and in order to save themselves from the guillotine, Kercius and Marie sided with the revolutionaries' requests, and produced models on demand of those they wanted the public to see, in order to further their message of anti-austerity. The revolutionaries were opposed to the royal family of France. The revolutionaries were opposed to the royal family of France, as a friend to the royals, due to their excellent likenesses of them on display in his exhibition, which the royals had personally visited, Kersius and Marie were quick to change the display, to avoid detection as royalists after the storming of the Bastille. Marie was said to be highlighted as a royalist by the revolutionaries, and so her compliance with them was necessary to keep her head. People began to stand outside the exhibition, requesting in a not-so-genteel manner, to see the leaders of the revolution. If Marie and Kersias didn't create them, then they would have risked their lives. So quickly, they produced busts of the constituent assembly, the revolution's key players, the most infamous being Robespierre, the leader of the uprising. Shortly after, Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette were executed within months of each other. They were then deemed acceptable to be put back on display or at least their heads were. Once executions were the norm du jour, during the reign of terror, which began with the royal's executions, Curseus and Marie really had their hands full, and in some cases, quite literally. By this time, Curseus's health had started to get worse, and Marie was at the beck and call of the revolutionaries. If a traitor had met Madame Guillotine, then the chances were Marie had made a model of their head. Usually from the actual head of the victim themselves, which would be taken to her at her studio. If a particularly important person was set to be executed, then Marie would attend the execution, sketch the person and capture their features whilst they were still alive, wait whilst the execution was carried out, then take the head from the basket, make a cast of their face, and hand the head back so it could be displayed on a spike is a warning to others to not cross the rebels. Marie described being horrified and distraught at being handed a decapitated head for the first time, but she couldn't show any fear, as if the revolutionaries sensed that she wouldn't comply, then she too would become yet another head in a basket. As the revolution raged on, the exhibition became somewhere for people to update themselves about the most recent events. Marie would be handed freshly guillotined heads while she was sat on the steps of the Caverne de Voleurs and would sculpt them as quickly as she could in order to keep everyone up to date with the quickly changing political climate. When Robespierre, who led the revolution, was himself executed, people were under the impression that things may quieten down, but there was still plenty of civil unrest and as a result, Curseus was called upon for national service as a translator for the army. This meant that Marie and her ageing mother would be left on their own in Paris and left responsible for running the exhibition on their own. After a few long months, Cursius was dismissed from his position and allowed to return home. But by this time it was too late and his health had taken a turn for the worse and within weeks he had passed away. Cursius, knowing that Marie would take very good care of the now-merged exhibitions, left them to her in his will. He also left his house, so her and her mother wouldn't have to move. Soon after, and with Marie suddenly coming into money, she found herself being courted by an acquaintance of hers, Francois Tussaud. He was enticed by her wealth, and he wasn't interested in the exhibition at all. In search of something to soften the blow of losing Curseus, who was the only male role model Marie had ever known, she found comfort in Monsieur Tussaud, and before long, the two were married. Francois had a business investing in theatres and wanted her money in order to continue to do so. Francois was skimming plenty of money away from the business and as interest started to dwindle and as a result of the revolution making Paris undesirable to visit, the exhibition started to lose revenue. And now, with two children to look after, Marie had to stretch her enterprising creativity. A saviour arrived in the form of an old friend. Paul phillips had been traversing Europe as a spiritualist and performing séances. Paul had been quite successful with his amazing ability to contact the dead, and with his surprisingly consistent results, he was soon found out to be swindling his audience. After his popularity dwindled, he picked up on a new form of entertainment. Magic lanterns were starting to become a craze for the wealthy, as they provided portable entertainment which could be delivered into people's homes. A form of very basic animation fused with cinema, the magic lantern used a small candle to project an image painted onto a glass slide, which was shone onto a sheet. Some slides were static, others had moving parts, and most importantly, they were in glorious technicolour. This allowed for all sorts of stories to be portrayed in people's living rooms, ranging from haunted houses filled with ghosts, werewolves and dancing skeletons to classic fairy tales where knights would slay dragons and princesses would be rescued. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. A precursor to television, Philip Style had the charm to mesmerise rooms with his Magic Lantern show, which he called the Phantasmagoria. And as Marie was keen to continue the exhibition, she accepted an offer from Philip Style to take the show on the road in order to bring in some much-needed money into the household. Marie packed up and made the tough decision to leave behind her two-year-old son, Francois Jr., with her husband, Francois Sr., and left the rest of her family to care for the boy and to look after the exhibition in Paris in her absence. Marie's husband had no interest in running the waxworks and was understandably dismayed that his wife would up and leave him to go on the road as this meant he would have to actually work for once instead of gallivanting in theatres and playhouses. Marie created duplicates of her most famous waxworks, packed her and her five-year-old son Joseph's things, and ordered carriages with the name of the exhibition daubed upon them, and they headed off on the road. The plan was that Marie and Philip Steyl would make their way across the United Kingdom, stopping at larger towns along the way to set up the exhibition and the Phantasmagoria until as such time as interest dwindled, and more importantly, the money had dried up. The limited time span worked to drum up interest, and the two were making a reasonable amount of money from each town they visited. Marie, being a canny businesswoman, knew that emblazoning the carriages and advertising via posters in advance to hype the pair's arrival was necessary, and paid dividends when they finally rocked up and opened their doors to the anticipating crowds. The English were fascinated by the French Revolution, and Marie's waxworks acted as a tabloid tableau for people to learn about their trouble in Paris. In particular, people were fascinated by the waxwork of Napoleon, who was portrayed in all his six glory. Napoleon, who had brought the French Revolution to a close by becoming the Emperor of France, was a figure that held interest as he was portrayed as a vile and evil man and one to be hated. The figure of Napoleon was well visited and became the star attraction of the waxworks. As a result, Marie purchased some of Napoleon's personal effects, which were also put on display alongside his likeness, making the exhibition a contemporary snapshot of his everyday life. As the money started to dry up in the town they were in, they moved on to Edinburgh in Scotland, which was known for its penchant for theatre and entertainment. The exhibition was well suited to Edinburgh as there was a large population of French immigrants who had fled from the revolution and set up a new life in the capital. Marie felt at home in Edinburgh, and she appreciated its quaintness. She also befriended a few other French immigrants. Marie couldn't speak much English, and as such, must have felt somewhat lonely with only Philip Stahl and her five-year-old son to keep her company. So she enjoyed mingling with women who had experienced similar upsets in their lives due to fleeing the revolution but after a short while, she was on the road again and headed to Ireland. After a while of touring, Marie was growing tired of the pressure from her husband to send some money home, but also Philip Style’s hunger for her revenue. Philip Style would steal more than his fair share of takings from the entrance fee, and Marie had had enough of his antics. After finding out that Philip Style hadn't paid the important bill of the transport for the exhibition to Edinburgh, Marie set up a deal with another travelling performer, a puppeteer, and she loaned some money from him so she could continue on her way without Philip Stoll helping himself to her takings. Marie toured across the whole of Ireland, taking advantage of the fairs which were held in the main towns and offered a plethora of activities, from trading in cattle to buying fabrics, but most importantly for Marie, entertainment. Marie fitted in well to the temporary experience of the fairs, but she was looking for something slightly more permanent, as life on the road was becoming a chore, and she knew that if she were to pitch her exhibition to the wealthier classes, she could make more money and have a more settled life for her and her son. Marie planned on setting up a different kind of exhibition, one in which people could socialise, and in order to attract a clientele with more money, she pitched her advertising toward them. Most adverts at the time were pictorial, due to the majority of the general public not being able to read and write, but Marie had posters which were mainly written, meaning they appealed to those with more money. She also hired grand venues to display the exhibition and put on entertainment in the form of a string quartet. This helped to raise the profile of the exhibition and meant that the middle classes would now spend their money, thus bringing in more revenue. This meant that they didn't have to move as often as they once had. Marie also produced catalogues of the exhibition, again all in writing, about each one of the exhibits and this led to people thinking they were getting a really good deal for their sixpence admission, which was admittedly quite high at the time. The exhibition would be split into two parts as it had been before in Paris and those wishing to also see the Caverne de Grand Valeurs could also pay an additional sixpence, which most people would and this also allowed Marie to keep extending the exhibit and including the most up-to-date figures which people wanted to see. Up until this time, the exhibition had still been known as wax waxworks, but with the new way of exhibiting, and most of Curseus' works now having been surpassed by Marie's models, she decided to rename the exhibition after herself, and Madame Tussaud's waxwork exhibition was born. As time passed, Marie's husband, back in France, was reporting that the waxworks was failing, and as he'd squandered the money and kept the place in a poor state, It eventually closed, and Francois Tussaud sold the exhibition to a debt collector. With no love lost, Marie dumped him via letter after 13 years of being on the road, and having not seen him in all that time, the two went their separate ways. Some years later, Francois Jr. went to England to track Marie down, and one day he walked into the exhibition at the age of 17, and Marie was delighted to have him back in her life. Marie taught her two sons in just the same way as she had been taught by Curseus, and as Joseph, her eldest son, married and had children, he brought his wife into the family business, and she also worked for Marie. In 1835, and after many more years of touring, Marie rented a palatial building on Baker Street in central Northwest London. She set up her exhibition as always, but little did she know that this would be its final stop on its 30-year tour. In this new space, Marie could excel at what she did best, and even the Caverne de Voleurs, now called the Chamber of Horrors, had its own dedicated floor in the basement, as opposed to the small room it would usually be set in. Londoners and tourists adored the Chamber of Horrors, and it became one of the main reasons that people would visit the exhibition. People wanted to learn about the French Revolution, and Marie didn't want to disappoint. She played up the setting, but not in a sensationalist way. She just wanted to make the viewers slightly disconcerted in their surroundings. She bought a guillotine and was certain to make sure that the text alongside it spoke the truth of the revolution, making sure that the 22,000 who lost their lives to its blade would be remembered. The guillotine went on display alongside the severed heads of the revolutionaries that she cast back in France, but also more recent murderers that had been executed in the UK. She had ominous music played in the basement, and would purchase other memorabilia, such as nooses and personal effects of the dead criminals, to go on display alongside them. The Chamber of Horrors became a London landmark of its own, and undoubtedly contributed to the continuing popularity of the exhibition for many, many years, spawning the latter London dungeon, which opened almost a hundred years later. Proving that the love of the macabre will always be strong with the general public, The Chamber of Horrors itself wasn't quite so lucky, and due to complaints from visitors who ignored the warning signs as to not take small children in there, closed its doors after many complaints from disgruntled visitors to make way for a new Marvel Comics exhibition in 2016. In order to bring in further crowds who weren't so interested in the Chamber of Horrors, Marie approached the new Queen of England, Queen Victoria, and asked to cast her likeness so it could be put on display in the exhibition. The Queen was delighted at Marie's offer and agreed to be immortalised in wax. Queen Victoria visited the waxworks for the unveiling of her figure and it was then that Marie knew she had hit the jackpot as whatever Victoria did, the Victorians followed. The tastes of the Queen were held in very high regard by the Victorian public and whatever she did was immediately copied by those who wanted to replicate her lifestyle. Victoria was modelled five times throughout her reign and her last version taken towards the end of her reign is still on show. The exhibition was so loved that Marie extended the lease on the building year after year, and the exhibition still lives in its original Baker Street location to this day. As Marie got older, her stories of her time with the exhibition became more and more fanciful, and when she dictated her memoir at the age of 80, it made for interesting reading, which historians have since disproven parts of, was flights of fancy. Encounters with royals who requested her to live at the Palace of Versailles and the tall stories of interacting with celebrities of the day were rounded out to be a good yarn instead of what actually happened, and even simple things such as her place of birth were embellished as she was embarrassed of her poor upbringing, despite her later successes. However, some of the more shocking tales of her involvement with the revolution were counter-reported by others around her and given some credence, so even though she knew how to tell a good story, some of her truth was too colourful to embellish upon. Marie's last ever waxwork that she made at the exhibition was a self-portrait, which is still on show to this day, and at the age of 89, she went to sleep one night and never woke up. She was buried in St Mary's Roman Catholic Church in south-west London, and by the time she died, she had truly become a household name. The fascination with waxworks hasn't dwindled, and to this day, Madame Tussauds isn't just popular in London, but there are franchises all over the world. What was once intended to be an interesting sideshow, went on to become incredibly successful. There is no doubt that the legacy of Marie lives on in the techniques that are still used to make the models, and people are still fascinated by having a chance to get up close and personal with a celebrity. celebrity without the potential of an awkward interaction. Undoubtedly, the one thing that stands out above the rest is that in a time when women weren't offered or even allowed the opportunity to work and make a living for themselves, Marie, a poorly educated immigrant, forged ahead in creating such successful business that it's still raking in money, even 169 years on from her death, making something 100% French, a true English tradition. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Macabre London. Have you ever been to Madame Tussauds, Tussauds? Tussauds? however you say it? <laughs> um, I think it's pronounced Tussauds, that's why I've gone with that pronunciation. Basically this whole video is me just messing up French, really, isn't it? Let me know who your favourite waxwork is in Madame Tussauds, if you've ever been. Did you ever go to the, I was gonna say the Chamber of Secrets, Chamber of Horrors when it was still around? Because I remember it from when I was little and it was great and I was so sad that it's gone. Anyway, enough of me waffling. Please like, comment and subscribe if you haven't done so already. If you have, thank you very much. If you're listening to the podcast, again, please remember to subscribe and also please leave us a five star review as well. Well, it doesn't have to be five star. You leave us a review of what you like. If you'd like to support the show, then there's a few various different ways you can do that. We've got an Amazon Wishlist, there's also Patreon as well, and plenty of other ways to support the show that are all in the description down below or in the show notes if you're listening to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me for another macabre tale from London's past. I've been Nikki Juice, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>